O Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for the sanctuary message, uh, your kindergarten, to help us understand that you did find an answer to the sin problem. And Lord, as we're going through this, we, we need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. We're so thankful for the blood of Christ, that there is power in the blood to, to wash away the filth of our sin. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you send to us to give us power to obey. We thank you, Lord, so much uh, for, for the love that you demonstrate to, for us. But Lord, we need the Holy Spirit because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And Lord, we don't want anything to stand between our soul and our Savior. And so we, we pray just now that, that your angels of light will come into this room and will keep the evil one from, from distracting us. I pray, Lord, that we will recognize your unique voice speaking to each of us and applying this message as the speaker could never do. And I thank you for that, Lord, but glorify your name and your mind be given to us now. And we thank you as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are learning in our presentations that God gave to Israel the sanctuary to help them understand the plan of salvation. That, that plan, they were to understand not only for their own edification so that they can intelligently cooperate with God, but Israel actually was supposed to share that with the Gentile nations around them as well. And so, so the, God is interested in saving a world a world of people created in his image. And we have learned in our study that uh, there was only one entrance and it was on the east end. There was a curtain there. And we learned that curtain represented Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that are burdened, heavy laden, that will give you rest. There's only one way to the Father and that is through Jesus. Last week, as we came to the brazen altar, we learned that that represented the cross. It was there that the sacrifice was given for the sinner. And Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins. He does. Now, our next step is going to be uh, the brazen, uh, excuse me, yes, labor. Labor is our third stop. Uh, in the sanctuaries, the Lord reveals to us the plan of salvation. The labor was made out of bronze. Maybe I should give a picture here. It was made out of bronze, and uh, it stood between the tabernacle and the brazen altar. It was actually made of women's mirrors. When there was uh, the offering that was taken of Israel for the various uh, implements and furnishings of the sanctuary, uh, the ladies gave their polished brass mirrors as a, a, uh, an offering, a love offering, if you will. And uh, it was used to make the labor, and that's very significant because, brothers and sisters, we got to see ourselves for what we really are before we're going to get help. Isn't that right? And so that's very appropriate to see that there. But let's move forward, and let's find out what is the lesson that God wanted us to learn here at the brazen altar. So let's take a look at question number one. You should all have your handouts with you. Question number one says, 
What service was conducted at the labor? Exodus 30, verse 18 and 19 tells us, you shall also make a labor of bronze with its base, also of bronze for what? For washing. Thank you for reading along with me there. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. And so what we're finding is that the laver was filled with water. And the priests were to wash their hands and feet. We're going to see a little bit more in the next verse, how and when. But they were to wash it here at the foot of the laver. They were to get the water from up here, but wash down at the foot of the labor. But when would they do that? And why would they do that? Question number two answers this one. What was the significance of the washing? Exodus 30, 20 and 21 says, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. Very interesting. So here we're finding that before they uh, ministered inside the tabernacle or before they brought an offering, the priest was to wash their hands and their feet. And that symbolic act uh, symbolized the washing away of all defilement of sin as they entered into the work and into the presence of God. Does this make sense? Now remember... Um, you know, it mentioned in there that if they didn't do that, that they would die. And I remember I would, I would read stuff like that and be like, well, that's kind of heavy. But we have to understand the role of the priest was very heavy. You see, they were literally an object lesson for the people. When the people came to the tabernacle to watch the services, they were to meditate on what they were watching and prayerfully the Holy Spirit would be communicating to them the plan of salvation revealed in their, in their actions. And so God gave specific instruction to the priests so that they would communicate the plan correctly so that the people could understand it correctly and therefore respond correctly. But if the priest got careless and they did not communicate it correctly, then the people would not understand it correctly and they would place the people in jeopardy. You remember the story of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, the story is found in Leviticus chapter 10. If you want to look that up later, there's your reference, Leviticus 10. God had given specific instruction to the children of, to the priests that whenever they were to use fire in any of the services, they were to use the fire that he lit at the brazen altar when the sanctuary was inaugurated. And you remember that after... Uh, uh, Moses uh, sprinkled everything with oil, signifying the consecration of the tabernacle to uh, the service of God. And they put an, uh, a sacrifice on the brazen altar and they prayed to the Lord. Fire came down from heaven and lit that fire. Well, that fire, whenever they moved during those, their 50 years in the wilderness, they were, before they broke camp, were to capture some of that fire uh, in a censer and keep that fire going until they set up camp again in their next location. And then any fire lit here or in the menorah was to be lit from that original fire. Are you with me? Yeah. 
God told them not to use any other fire, no common fire. That was not acceptable to him. Now, Bible students, what is fire a symbol of in Scripture? The Holy Spirit. And so when we come into the service of God, we're to come with his spirit, not another spirit. Our Bible tells us there is another spirit in this world. And we got to make sure we don't come in that spirit. Does that make sense? And so when, when uh, Nadab and Abihu, they got careless and they said, fire's fire, what's the big deal? Without meaning to, they were actually about to send a message to the children of Israel that would have jeopardized them and it ended up costing them their lives. You know, this tells me something very important. My life is an example to others. You and I, you and I have been entrusted with truth, brothers and sisters. And Peter says that you and I are a nation of priests. And so there are many people out there who may never read their Bible and the only Bible they may read is your life and mine as a neighbor, as a co-worker. Isn't that right? And so how vital it is that our lives reflect the Savior that we serve at all time. And for that to happen, you and I have to be in our Bibles, don't we? We need to be studying the Word that we may properly and rightly represent our God. If you're in agreement with that, will you say amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, let's take a look at number three. The work of being reconciled to God, term for that is being justified or made right, which began at the brazen altar where we encounter the blood, continues at the laver with its water. And, um, and so this reconciliation we refer to as being justified or made right. In, the, in theological terms, we refer to that as justification. It's a big word, isn't it? Justification. If you, need, uh, if you want to break that down in a very easy way to understand, just work with the first six letters. Just if. Justification is God views you just if you hadn't sinned. That's justification. God views you just if you hadn't sinned. When we accept uh, the sacrifice that that the Lord has provided in us in his precious son. Now, King David, this was very special to King David. Uh, In Psalms 51, we find uh, a Psalms that references uh, David's uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba where he comes and asks for forgiveness. And I submit to you uh, that David's interest in the sanctuary began from that experience when, when he finally saw himself what he really was, a big sinner, and he needed a big savior. And so in his study, and we talked about that in my first presentation, but here in Psalm 51, 7, we find these words of King David. He says, wash, what's that first word? Wash Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Have you ever longed for that in your heart? King David did as well, and he called for it. Well, Paul talks about this in uh, uh, Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 22. Uh, How does Paul explain the outer court's symbolic meaning and relevance to us today. Hebrews 10, uh, uh, verses 19 and 22 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness or confidence to enter the holiest, now he's talking about the sanctuary in heaven, by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure what? 
water, let us hold fast the confidence of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is is faithful. So in the outer court, we encounter blood and water. And that blood and water speaks to us of God's ability to forgive us of our sins, friends. It speaks to God's ability to cleanse us and to forgive us. And I am so thankful that God is willing to do that. I don't know about you, but there's a lot back in my past that I am so thankful that the blood of Jesus washes away. So thankful. And so blood and water is the outer court experience. And there's a message there, and that is that God forgives. I want to to, uh, uh, touch on your memory now. Do you recall that when Jesus died on the cross and his lifeless form hung there, Pilate was informed of Christ's death. Pilate was surprised because the cross was designed to prolong life and torture its victim uh, in a slow death. And for him to die within hours really surprised Pilate, so he dispatched a soldier to check to see if it was true. The soldier went And there he encountered Christ's lifeless form. And you'll recall what happens next. He took the spear and thrusted it into his side. And what flowed out, friends? Blood and water. And in that message, the price had been paid. Forgiveness now was available for the repentant sinner. That was the message of that blood and water that flowed out by the side of Jesus. You know, there's a number of things in the sanctuary that I don't understand. Uh, I have been told, people have come to me and says, you're an expert. No, I'm not. I'm a student. I'm a student. There's too much in here. I'm just sharing with you the little I know. But one of the things that really bothered me is that there's so much detail in the sanctuary. Um specifications that God gave to Moses on how to build it. And yet, if you study the Bible carefully, uh, in the Mosaic Sanctuary, there are no measurements of the lab- for the labor. There are no measurements. And that really bothered me. Not, not, because, not because I had to know its size, but how, it just seemed to be an omission. And I thought to myself, did Moses goof and he forgot, he forgot to write it down? Did, did the Lord forget to tell him? Did some scribe somewhere in history forgot to forget to, to, to translate that one section? And, and, and no, God guards his word. So I didn't think that happened. And it used to bother me until one day the, I realized, I began to think, could it be that God did that on purpose? Is there a message in the labor, the cleansing labor, not having measurements. And as I was prayerfully talking to the Lord about it, it hit me. There is a message. You see, friends, God's ability to forgive is boundless. It's, it's immeasurable. It is, it is a, a shoreless sea. I, I don't, it doesn't matter, friend, what you have done. God is a bigger forgiver than you are a sinner. There is ample forgiveness for all who wish for it. The fountain is available to you. It is open to you. Let's take a look at our next question, number five. What does Jesus do for us when we confess our faith in him and accept his atoning work for us? 
And in Romans 10, 9, Paul tells us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and what's the next word? Believe. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is very, very important. The, the issue of belief is very important. We have to believe that. Revelation 1, 5, and 6, John fleshes this out a little bit more for us. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and what? What's the next word? And what? Washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus came to wash us, friends. I want to share with you, though, something you may not be aware of. There is one sin that God cannot forgive. There is one sin God cannot forgive, and it's the sin that we don't ask forgiveness for. That's the only sin that God cannot forgive. You see, God is a gentleman. God does not force the plan of salvation upon us. He does not save us against our will. God is love, and love never forces Force is not part of the kingdom of God. God is a perfect gentleman. He does everything he can. He buys the ticket for our flight, but it's up to us to grab hold of that ticket and step on the plane. It's up to us. He will not force us, but he will make everything possible. You know, it's amazing, but think about this. Love can only exist in an environment of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Love cannot exist in an environment of force. Only in freedom can love exist. And, and so there is a choice that we have to make. Number one, we have to believe that that sacrifice was for you and me. We have to believe that God is a bigger forgiver than you are a sinner. The second thing we have to believe is that God is willing, but we have a choice to make. Just, just think of God's forgiveness like oxygen. Our world is surrounded by oxygen. Isn't that true? But if I choose not to breathe, I am going to die. I have a choice to make. I have, God may supply everything we need, but we have a choice to make. Let's take a look now at, uh, at Galatians uh, 5, which adds another, another element of the atoning work that Christ has, is doing for us, has done and is doing for us. Galatians 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast. Therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and what's the next two words? Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Friends, what God is telling us is this, that Jesus came not only to deal with our record of sin, he wants to deal with our life today. And so, so what the Lord wants us to do is be set free from the bondage of sin and then not go back to it. The sanctuary's message is beautiful. It's a message of freedom. You will know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? From the bondage of sin and death, my friends. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Lord wants to set us free, not only from our, our, our sinful past, but from those things that have us bound today. Now, the amazing thing is that in, in the scriptural directions that God had given to us, there is actually a ceremony that uh, reveals this decision to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 
And uh, take a look at number six, because Peter talks about it in Acts chapter uh, 22. It says, after coming to Jesus and by faith accepting his death for my sins, what am I counseled to do next? Acts twenty two sixteen says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, blood and water that we find in the outer court points not only to Christ giving himself to, to us, but the labor is about us giving ourselves to him. It's about committing ourselves. This is the ceremony that the Lord himself set up for us to follow. This is where we give ourselves to him. And brothers and sisters, I want to share something. Just as the priest had to wash his hands and feet before he conducted service, when you and I give our lives to Christ, you and I are called to service. We're called to service too. There's a world out there that is dying to know Jesus Christ. Now, they may not want to hear what you have to say because they've had a bad experience with other so-called Christians. But when you live the truth, you cannot argue against that. People can argue with your theology, but when you're living it, there's nothing to argue with. Are you with me? And so when, we, when anybody that accepts Christ's sacrifice is enlisted into the service of God as a missionary, and all around us, beginning in our homes, is the mission field. Let's take a look at number seven. Let's take a look at, at, at baptism here. Number seven, what does the word baptize mean? Colossians 2.12 says, the first word is, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you were raised with him through uh, the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. The Greek word for baptize, the word is actually baptizo, means baptize, is the word we use, and it means to submerge, to plunge under, or to immerse. That is the only form of baptism taught in the Bible. That's the only one. Now, I shared with you that I used to be a Catholic, my family and I, and when I was uh, little, a baby, in fact, that I was sprinkled. There is that word sprinkling, the Greek word, which escapes me right now, is actually not found in Scripture in connection with baptism. It's not there. This is the only form of baptism that the Bible teaches. So as a result, after reading my Bible and realizing that, I was baptized. Amen. The biblical way. Now, in the Middle Ages, how did we get here then, Pastor? Well, without spending a lot of time on it, but in the, in the Middle Ages, many of you are aware that uh, the Bible was locked in a forgotten language in Latin. And the people, in fact, even the priests didn't have access, many, to the scriptures. And so uh, superstition uh, abounded. And, um, and so people began to think that if they were baptized, they were in, but if they sinned, they were out. So many waited until they were on their deathbed to be baptized because then you're too sick to sin. And uh, so, what the, so many of these folks couldn't be taken to, to a place to be baptized. So what they did is they just got buckets of water and just started, you know, and that kind of made a mess. And then finally they just decided just to, to douse their head and they did that and that made a mess. And so finally it progressed to sprinkling. So I just gave it to you in a nutshell. But, uh, but that's actually how we got there. But, 
But in the Catholic churches, even that were, that were, that were built, even as late as the, the 10th century, you will still find baptismal fonts. You'll still find them there. Very, very, very interesting. But the, the biblical method is immersion. Let's take a look at the example that Jesus gave us in baptism. And this is uh, number eight. What example did our Savior leave us regarding baptism? Mark 1, 9 and 10 says, Jesus came and was baptized of John in the Jordan and straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open. Jesus was not sprinkled. He was in and had to come up out of the water. That's the example he gives us. By the way, if you will indulge me, I want to take a little bit of a detour. <clears throat> we're talking, we're, we're, we're studying how the plan of salvation, the way back to the, to the Lord, it, the, the path is found here. The path to the throne of God is in the sanctuary. And you and I, uh, when we were lost, we were lost out in the world. And, and out here, we, we talked about the outer court as representing planet Earth. You remember that? Because that's where Jesus came and died, right? But out here represent, presents, represents Earth too, but out here is where we're lost. So here we're in the world and of the world. You with me so far? But in here, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We have entered into a process. We talked about the outer curtain that was white. It represented what? Do you remember, students? The righteousness of Christ. And when we come in here, we are covered by that. Isn't that right? And so, so when we come in and we give our lives, we, we come to Jesus, who is the gate, then we come to the brazen altar and we accept Christ's offering of life to us. Then we are to commit our lives to him through baptism. Is this making sense? You following me so far? If you are, please say amen. amen. Okay, now, but did you notice in the life of Jesus that his experience was opposite? First, he was baptized. Then he had the cross experience. Did you notice that? The reason being, it has to do with the direction in which we are approaching these symbols. You see, you and I are coming from the world. This represented the world. What does this represent? Heaven. Jesus was coming from a different perspective. Then he returns to heaven and he bids us, follow me. He has gone to prepare a place for us, hasn't he? And he has promised to come and to take us back to his home very soon. Isn't that right? I wanted to share that with you because that is amazing. But let's continue here. Let's take a look at another example of baptism given to us in Scripture, and that is found in number nine. How did Philip baptize uh, the treasurer of Ethiopia? And you remember the story? The Ethiopian was on uh, the chariot reading Isaiah chapter 53, and uh, the, the Holy Spirit moves upon Philip to come alongside, and, uh, and the discussion begins, and he begins to explain to him, to the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, the plan of salvation and he, he preaches unto him Christ and he accepts it and watch his response here in Acts 8, 38 and 39. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him and now when they came what? Out, out of the water the spirit of the Lord caught up Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing isn't that amazing as soon as he accepts by faith that Jesus is the Messiah what was his next experience 
he was baptized. And you see again, he goes into the water, he comes up out of the water. Let's take a look at number 10. What other truths are symbolized by baptism? And Romans 6 verse 4 uh, says, Therefore we are buried with him in baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. And so what we find is that baptism is a symbol. And I am going to ask Jake, I didn't ask you ahead of time, but you're always such a big help. Could you step up? I'd like to use you as, a, as an example here. You won't be too badly embarrassed. You'll be fine. Just, just go ahead and grab my, my hand here this way, nice and tight, and then this one this way. And so at baptism, um, you know, we're in the water there, and the candidate lays back into the water, right? And what happens to his breathing right there? It stops. Then he comes back up. And it is a symbol of a death to the old person. And then we're brought forth in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. Thank you. That was really quick. Thank you so much. And so what's happened here is a change. Now remember I shared about the throne of the heart, that before we come to Christ, we're sitting on that throne. We do what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want. Isn't that right? But when we give our lives to Jesus, now we ask Jesus to come to rule on the throne of our heart. And as we study the word, we now adjust our lives to his will. Does that make sense? And so baptism is actually a public demonstration that that event has taken place in our hearts. That we have made a decision that we are now going to follow Christ and let him rule over us. Does that make sense? And so baptism is actually the symbol that God has given to us regarding that. And so what the sanctuary is actually teaching us, and I don't know if you can see that, but if you have your pencils ready or maybe afterwards your cameras, you can take pictures. But what we're finding is that the plan of salvation is actually broken into three parts. The outer court, which is what we're studying right now, tells us about justification, all right? And, and, and what, what God is dealing with here is our sinful past. So through the blood of Christ and the cleansing, we find that God gives us victory over the record of sin. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that there is a record kept of our lives. And there's stuff on there we don't want on there. Amen? Amen. There's about 10 of you that answered me. Yeah, I know. It's everyone in this room. The fact is, there's things on there we don't want there. And so the blood of Jesus, when we ask God's forgiveness, the blood of Christ is applied and washes that. Okay, we learned. Isn't that about the transfer? It's all that's transferred onto Christ. Remember that? We learned about that. And so, so what we're talking about here is what we as Christians refer to as the new birth or conversion. The outer court tells us about how to become a Christian. But the holy place and the most holy teach us how to remain one. And that's referred to in the, in the, um, in the holy place, we're going to learn about sanctification. So justification is how we learn how to become a Christian. Sanctification, we're going to learn how to remain one. And here we're going to learn about victory over the power of sin. There's, a, there's, a, there's another gospel being preached today that we're going to be saved while sinning. Sinning is rebellion against God. And uh, we have to remember in Revelation chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to learn that the angels were cast out of heaven for sinning. And how are we going to go in that way? 
rebelling against God. And, um, and so we're going to find that Jesus came, and if you want a reference, here's one for you, Matthew 1.27, talking about Jesus and his mission, it says that, that, that Jesus would come and save his people from their sin, not in their sin. So pastor, how do I get victory over sin? We're going to learn about it because the sanctuary is going to teach us. It's going to teach us how to have victory over sin. And uh, so here, we're going to learn how to walk with Jesus. Then in the last compartment, we're going to learn about glorification. And here we're going to find uh, how God has put together uh, a plan on how to bring an end to sin. And so in the most holy place, we're going to learn about victory over the presence of sin. Isn't it wonderful to know that sin is not going to go on forever? It is not. God has a plan to bring it to an end. And so here is where the people of God inherit eternal life and we are home at last. And all of that is in the sanctuary. It teaches us. We learn about justification, how to become a Christian, sanctification, how to remain a Christian, and glorification, the end of sin, and coming home. Does that sound good to you? We're going to learn all about that. But right now, we are learning about justification. Let's take a look at number 11. What blessed ceremony can be compared to baptism? Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put, have what? Put on Christ. So, so we've put him on. We've entered into a relationship with him. Read along with me. I'll read out loud if you would read quietly. The, um, the note right below that. Baptism is the symbol selected by Jesus to show to the world that we have chosen to give our lives to Jesus. It is the outward demonstration of what has already taken place in the heart. The confession is a public one demonstrating to all that we love Jesus and we are not ashamed of him. Thus, baptism is like a marriage ceremony. The Bible says, for thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. As a woman takes uh, her husband's name in marriage, so Christians take the name of Christ, therefore to be called Christians. Both ceremonies must be based on love and what? Commitment, if they are going to be meaningful. Baptism is as essential to the Christian life as a wedding is to a marriage. It is, you know, and yet, as a pastor, I have run into folks that don't want to be baptized. They want the benefits of being, uh, of, uh, that Jesus offers. They want to be saved. They want heaven and the whole works. But they don't want to commit to Jesus. They accept the gift of Jesus, but they won't give themselves to Jesus. You know, to me, that's the equivalent of a man walking up to a woman and saying to her, you know, I like you. And uh, I want all the benefits of marriage with you, but I don't want to marry you. Ladies, if any guy should ever say that to you, turn on your heels and walk away because what he's really saying is he doesn't love you enough. Because love is a commitment, brothers and sisters. Love is a commitment. 
And, 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 and just as a wedding is a, is a public demonstration that, hey, I love this person and I'm giving my life to them, baptism is the same thing. Amen. I am saying to the world, I have chosen Jesus. I am not ashamed of him. I have committed my life to follow him. And uh, when we choose not to follow that plan, we are short-circuiting the plan of salvation. I want to show you something rather interesting. Open in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 7. Remember I shared with you that the Bible, the New Testament, is full of sanctuary imagery. That unless you understand the sanctuary, you miss a lot. So here's one that you're going to be familiar with. Matthew chapter 7, and I am going to read verse 13 and put your sanctuary thinking caps on. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who what? You know, I find it really interesting that nobody has to find the broad way. Did you catch that? Because we're on it unless we give our lives to Christ. But, but the thing is, to get on the narrow way, you've got to do something. You've got to find it. That involves search, and that search is in here. Now, what's really interesting is that it calls it a narrow way. If you study the dimensions of the gates, the the curtains, you will find that the further in you go, the more narrow they get. It is the narrow way, and it's taught in here. Let me show you another text. Let's go to, well, let's not go there. I'll just tell you. You remember that prior to Jesus' mission, um, God sent a forerunner, John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a message. Make straight the way of the Lord. God has a way, brothers and sisters. It's the narrow way, and it's a straight way. And when you look in the sanctuary, you're going to find a straight path that leads to the throne of God. The children of Israel had been entrusted with this message, but by the time of Christ, they had totally warped it. It became a big works trip or a genetics trip. If you are of the blood, you're in. I guess today we can say if you're a member of the right church, if your name's on the books, you're in. It doesn't work that way. And if, or, the, or, or as a works trip. It's by faith. And we looked at that at Hebrews 11. Isn't that right? By faith, Abel. By faith, Moses. By faith, Noah. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Jacob. By faith, all the way through Old Testament characters. We are saved by faith. Amen. Faith in the Messiah. They had to have faith in the Messiah that was coming. You and I have to have faith in the Messiah that came. They look forward to the cross. You and I look back to the cross. But all of it is by faith. And so... And so John the Baptist was telling him, make straight the way of the Lord. You guys have come up with a different way and it won't work. And the way is found here. And brothers and sisters, as Christians, as as we accept Christ as our Savior and we're heading towards God, if we try to deviate, we're setting something up that will not be accepted. God has set up a plan for us, brothers and sisters, and we need to accept the plan that God has set for us, and we need to make God's ways straight. Does that make sense? Let's take a look at number 12. 
How important is baptism to, to Christians today? Okay, now what I'm going to share with you now was not written by Pastor Valte. It was written by the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And, uh, or, or written by the apostles, but it was spoken by Jesus. Mark 16, 16 says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now let me pause right there. Baptism will not save you. It's, it's just an outward demonstration that you have accepted Christ by faith. And by obeying Jesus and staying within his will, it gives God the right to save you. Does, does that make sense? So Jesus says, right there, repeat it again, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. saved. But he that believeth not shall be saved. Yeah, if we don't have faith in Christ the Messiah, why would I be baptized? Does that make sense? If you're with me, say amen. All right, let's take a look at the other text. And this is uh, John 3, 5. And this is a Christ conversation with Nicodemus. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it is demonstrating faith in Christ when I make the decision to give my life to him. I accept his life for me, but now I need to give my life to him. Does that make sense? That's what, that's what makes a relationship. That's what makes a relationship is that, that willingness for, for us to accept his commitment to us and us to, you know, in, in our married lives, if only one person was committed, how long is that relationship going to last? Not, not very long. And we don't have to worry about God reneging on his deal. Who do we have to worry about? About us reneging on our deal. Let's take a look at uh, number 13. What command did Jesus give to his people just before his ascension? Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at that text, shall we? I want to flesh that out a little more because there's something here we need to really lock in on. Matthew 28. And of course, what we're reading here uh, is Christ's last words to his disciples before he ascended to heaven, right? You know, anybody's last words, you've got to lock in on. And here are his last words to his disciples. And uh, Matthew 28, I'm going to pick up at verse 18. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's step one. Step two is what? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Step three is what? Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus actually gave his disciples a three-step plan. Number one, disciple people. Introduce me to them. Introduce them to me. Teach them what it means to follow me. Show them what it means to follow me. And if they respond, and you see the fruitage in their life, and they're willing to yield and allow me not only be their Savior, but their Lord, then the next step is to what? It's then to baptize them, the public demonstration. They have actually made that decision in their heart. But then, does it end there? No, there's more learning. You know, when I, um, when Sue Ellen and I dated back in the day, uh, we spent a lot of time together getting to know one another because that dating process really determined whether or not we really wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. Isn't that right? 
We used to call that courtship. Maybe we ought to bring that back. But, uh, but the reality is that when a man and a woman uh, get to, uh, they, 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 they have an interest in one another, they spend time together to see whether or not they want to spend the rest of their life together. And that's why baptism should never be a flippant thing. It's not a graduation. It's a time to, to spend with Christ. By the Bible reminds us that um, Jesus says that we are to count the cost, right? Count the cost. So we enter in this relationship with, to see if we want to make a lifetime commitment to Jesus. By the way, anybody that says no to that is blind and crazy. Blinded by the prince of darkness. Choosing Christ as the Lord of your life is the smartest thing you will ever do. It is the best decision you'll ever make. But my point is that baptism is something we just don't enter into. This is one of the reasons why in the Protestant Reformation they recognized that you don't baptize infants. Because they haven't reached the place, they haven't come to the place where they can make an intelligent decision. You have to wait. I remember when we were, uh, we were church members in Lad Springs Church in Tennessee and, and their, their platform, their rostrum is interesting in that the baptismal tank is right under where the preacher speaks. And so when they have a baptism, they have these, uh, these, this setup, this lid where they lift off, and then the tank then is exposed and you step down into the tank. It's really interesting. And uh, my son at the time was three years old. Sarah wasn't born yet. Uh, but it would be in that church that she would be born. But, uh, but anyway, and so Josh was, you know, we always brought little things for him to occupy himself with and uh, and then he kind of started seeing these these boards coming up off the floor and he was wondering what in the world are they doing in church and uh, and then he saw uh, the pastor get into the water and then the woman and Josh was completely three years old was completely blown away he was like he leans over to me says dad why is that lady taking a bath in church and I said <laughs> I said actually she's really not taking a bath in church and uh, he and so he asked me what's happening and I shared with him that she is committing her life to Christ she wants all of us to know she made that decision and this is called baptism and he looks over at me with his big brown eyes and he says daddy I want to be baptized and uh, I want to share something with you. Don't ever tell a child no. Don't ever do it. When a child asks that, you say to them, wonderful. So this is what I told them. I said, wonderful. You are in the discipling process. You're in that process right now. So there, you need to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, so I encouraged him, and I held him off for several years. And he would periodically bring it up again. And when he was six, he really started to pressure me. And I said, okay. The next step is you need to study. And right now you don't know how to read. <laughs> and uh, so I need you to be able to read so that you know that what, and understand the decision you're making. And before he was seven, he was he, it, it really motivated him. He mastered reading. And I thought, okay. And, um, and so then I, said, I started giving him books. I have a, a resource <laughs> list for parents. And, and Josh just read everything I gave him. I held him off until he was nine, and I felt he was, he was old enough. He had studied enough. He used, to t he used to go with me to give Bible studies to people. Uh, Josh actually started preaching when he was 10. He has preached two evangelistic series by himself on his own overseas. And, uh, and so he gave, uh, and finally at nine, he gave his life. But I wanted to make sure that the experience was meaningful to him. 
I want to make sure he understood because this is the most crucial, the most important decision a human being will ever make in their life. And he made that decision. I made the decision when I was 12. And um, there was one misunderstanding for me. Uh, I was a rascal when I was a kid. I was the kid that your parents didn't want you hanging out with. And, uh, but, when, when, but when we left the Catholic Church, my mother started studying her Bible and began to learn all kinds of new things, and, and we became Protestant. I, um, uh, a, young, a young pastor uh, began studying with me, and, uh, and I, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus. And when I did, um, I had a, a misunderstanding. I thought that once you were baptized, you would never sin again. I don't know, maybe that's from my Catholic background. But, but I thought I would never sin again. And uh, so anyway, I still remember the day, uh, that beautiful water. I remember going into it. I remember how my whole being thrilled when I came out and knew that I was right with God. And all that stuff that I'd done was washed away. I still remember that day coming home, driving down Vine Street, seeing some of my friends off to the side. They were in a scuffle. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's never going to be part of my life again. I was so excited. And uh, at the end of the week, I was playing with one of my friends. And we got into a disagreement. And uh, he said some things I didn't like, so I punched him in the mouth. And um, as he's laying there on the ground, it dawned on me that I had sinned. I had done something that Jesus would not have done. And then I began to wonder. I thought something, something malfunctioned. And uh, somehow I didn't receive the blessing. And maybe God was more, he had more important things to take care of that day, and I fell through the cracks. I really felt that God didn't want me. And that began my drift as I went back out into the world, into a life of sin. And I'm not going to get into all that. I shared with you in my first talk how I came back. But it was a misunderstanding. Brothers and sisters, when we commit our lives to Christ, there's still a growth that has to take place. We're growing in our understanding in grace. The Holy Spirit is helping us and working with us. Let's flesh that out a little more here in in question number 14. After the altar and the labor experience, what are we called? John 1, 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of the will, not of the will of man, but of who? Listen to what I'm going to tell you. When you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting his sacrifice for your behalf, your past is gone. I don't care what's back there. You are not a bigger sinner than God is a savior. It's gone. And he gives you now in, 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 in your place of your sinful life his wonderful righteous life. And he takes your sinful life and applies it to himself. That's how it works. Then what happens is you're called the children of God. And if you stay with, and we're going to look at this as we go along, you're going to find that God, that when we get to heaven by God's grace, he's going to give us a crown. We're also going to find in the book of Revelation that Jesus is going to share the throne with us. What in the world does that mean? What are the implications of that? That is amazing, but it's not make-believe. You are royalty. Ah, y'all don't even believe it. (laughs) Listen, God has sent angels assigned to guard and protect his children. They know they're guarding royalty. Now, the prince of darkness also assigns an angel to you too, and their job is to rob you of your crown. That's what it is but we are called his children. Let's take a look at the, the note right below that. And I will read it aloud as you uh, read along with me quietly. The outer court experience teaches us about 
Justification. What is justification? It is victory over the record of sin. It is the judicial act of God by which he pardons the sins of those who believe in Jesus and then entreats them and then treats them as righteous in the eyes of the law. Let's pause there. Can you imagine Christ coming up to you and says, and we, we ask for forgiveness and he comes up to you and says, give me your sinful life and I am giving you my righteous life. It's an exchange. An exchange takes place. Let's continue. It is God viewing and treating the forgiven sinner as if he or she has never sinned. This process began at the altar of burnt offering with the shedding of blood of animals, all pointing to Jesus, our sacrifice. When we accept his sacrifice for us, Jesus applies the record of his spotless righteous life to our broken and bankrupt life. He then takes the record of our sinful life and applies it to himself. This is justification. This is grace. It is a free gift of God extended in love to the hopeless, helpless sinner. This ceremony conducted at the labor pointed forward to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, of which we take part in baptism. Death to the old sinner and the symbolic resurrection of the new man or woman in Jesus. This experience is the beginning of a new life with Christ. You know, most of us here are parents or have been parents. You remember the, day, remember the time when they were learning to walk? You remember that? having to put everything up high or... You know, when a baby's learning to walk, what do they often do? They do, don't they? But the goal is to walk. Have you ever seen a parent who is, who is watching their baby take their footsteps and fall? Have you ever seen a parent do this? What are you doing? Get up. You're embarrassing me. Do parents do that when a baby is learning to walk and falls? No. The parent comes alongside and says, nice try. Here, take my hand. Let me help you. Let's try again. That's what our father says, friend, when we're seeking to serve him and we trip up and fall. The next time you do, just remember, listen carefully to the voice of Jesus saying to you, nice try. Take me by the hand. Let's try again. And you know, and the, goal is, the goal is to learn finally to to walk, not to keep. And you know, there are areas in my life that I used to trip and fall a lot. I don't anymore. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, God has given me victories in those areas. I'm not white knuckling. I'm not missing the sins of my past. I am so thankful. But there's still some other areas. You know, what, what happened is that the Lord started helping me compartmentalizing things in my life. He would say, George, let's deal with this. And then once he had me walking in that area by his power, then he'd say, now, George, we got to deal with this. You know, and right now he's teaching George how to be patient. <laughs> Am I the only one? I want to be like Christ in every situation, friends. That's my goal. I want Christ living out his life within me. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul says. That is my, my goal, our goal. Let's continue. Verse 15. What is this wonderful conversion experience called? John 3.17 says you must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, that religious man who was viewed by everyone in his community as pious, but it was his own works. And Jesus says that will not get you into heaven. You've got to be born again. You've got to be. And the, sanct the, the waters of baptism of the labor is about starting over a new life. Number 16. But... 
But you know what? Let me show you this text. I have to show it to you. Turn with me in the book of Titus. This is interesting. This morning as I was having worship with the Lord, and uh, I, I have regular things that I'm reading, but this morning I just wanted something from the Lord, from Him, and uh, I have a little app where there's Bible readings for the day, and that came to my mind, and I thought, oh, let me go check that out. I was amazed at this text, Titus chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 4, okay? You there, Titus 3, verse 4? Amen. There, say amen. You're, amen, you there? Okay, verse 4. But with the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, pause there, that's the outer court experience we're talking about, right? What's the next word? And the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that's the sanctifying power. We're going to talk about that. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. It's a newness of life we find in God, the outer court experience beginning again. Let's continue, verse 16. But doesn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit replace the baptism of immersion? There are some people that say that if I receive the Holy Spirit, isn't that enough? Let's follow what the Bible says. Acts 2.38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We got to keep the path straight. If you remember, there is uh, an experience that Peter had in the book of Acts chapter 10 when he encountered Cornelius, the centurion Gentile. Do you remember that? And you remember that as he was really, that's an amazing story. We're going to have to get into that at some point. But as he goes uh, with Cornelius to Cornelius' house, something no Jew would do, uh, Peter then shares the gospel. And do you remember what falls on them immediately? The Holy Spirit. And Peter's like, whoa, so the gospel's for Gentiles too. What did he say that they needed to do then? Be baptized. You can look at it in Acts chapter 10. So not only did they receive the Holy Spirit, but they, had, they were baptized later. So that answers that question. Let's continue now, verse 17. Is baptism connected with joining a church? Acts 2.41 says, then, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them, that, uh, them about 3,000. Added? Added to what? Let's take a look at a few verses down, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. We are part of the family of God. And the Lord wants us, when we are baptized, we're baptized into that family, not as freelance marauders. We are a family. He wants us together where we grow together, we learn together, we, we watch out for one another. He wants us in a family. You know, I, as a pastor, one of the things I've enjoyed doing when I go to the hospitals, I used to go to the baby section upstairs, and, and with the big window, you see all the big, fat, chubby babies that are... And uh, I would just love to sit there and look at those little guys. Uh, They're so cute. But I never saw a nurse take one of those babies and go outside and then lay him on the sidewalk and say, well, kid, it was was a tough entry, but you're here. You made it. Uh, It's a big world out there. You uh, make good decisions. Take care. (laughs) They don't do that. Babies are placed in families to be taken care of, to be fed, nurtured. And that's the model God has given 
God adds to the church. We are to watch out for one another. We are a family. Number 18, when Jesus was baptized, what did his father say? Mark 1, 9 and 11 says, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My friend, God is pleased today when people accept the gift of his son and are willing to give themselves to him. I submit to you that there is a celebration in heaven, the Bible says, when a sinner returns to the Savior. There is an appeal here in this presentation, and it says this, if you have never demonstrated your decision for Jesus through the rite of baptism, and it is your desire to begin preparing for the sacred rite so God can say of you, thou art my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased, please answer below with a yes. I want to follow Jesus. I want to ask you this question. There's a number here who have never really given themselves to Jesus. Haven't had, there are those here that have never entered into that commitment. And I want to ask, is there anyone here that has never done that but would like to give their lives to Jesus and enter into those waters? And if, you're, and if there are any, would you stand? Would you like to stand now? If you had never made that decision and you would like to, amen, Tom, amen. Anyone else? God bless you. I know there's more, friends. If you have never given your life and you would like to, Give your life to Jesus. Stand up. Just give, stand. Thank you. Grant. Amen. All right. Stand up. Remain standing. Remain standing. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Amen. Corey, praise the Lord. Okay. Is there anyone else? I want to give you this opportunity. You've been thinking about it. You've been, you've been kicking it around. I want to give you a chance to stand. Amen. Thank you, John. Let's have a word of prayer. And I want you to know I am praying for you. I am praying for you each day as I go for my walks. You've already been, the Lord has already placed you on my heart. I'm praying for a number of others here as well. And if anyone else is still kicking the idea around, come see me. Let me have a word of prayer. And then afterwards, our songsters are going to come up for our closing song. Just stay where you're at. Father in heaven, we come to you thanking you for your loving kindness and mercy. We thank you for the gift of your dear son and for this service that reveals our acceptance and our willingness to give our lives to you. Lord, I pray that you be with those who are standing. Bless them richly. I pray for a special anointing of your spirit upon them, but for everyone here. I thank you for that, and I ask it in Christ's name. Please, Lord, be with us as we continue to move forward in our studies. Amen. Now, friends, those of you who are standing, I want to say that these lesson studies are going to be preparing us and moving us towards that. Now, for those of you who have given your life to Jesus, and if you want to recommit your life just right now, and you want to say, Lord, I give my heart to you anew, please stand. Father in heaven, you have revealed to us, you're revealing to us, I should say, in the sanctuary, your plan of salvation, that there is an answer to the sin problem. We're so grateful as we see a Father in heaven who loves us so much to empty heaven of its greatest gift, to pay the ransom to set us free. We thank you for the service you've given to us, this public demonstration of an internal decision to give our lives to you, to follow you, and to allow you to be enthroned in our hearts so that Jesus can live out his life within us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Bless all here. Lord, I know there are a number that weren't able to make it today. They too have approached me and asked me, Lord, if I'd be willing to, to baptize them. 
And so, Lord, you're preparing us through this service, all these precious people. Lord, the devil is going to try to assail them and shake them loose from your hand. And I pray that you remind them that you will never leave them nor forsake them and that you will bring them forth and through more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.